Well, so here's, here's the big idea. I'll just pretend that didn't happen. Here's the big idea. If last week was, if la- or two weeks ago, if that was about attitude, this week the big idea would be a posture. I don't think this part's in your notes, actually. I forgot that as I was doing everything else. But a posture of fear. If you want to write that at the head. A posture of fear. A posture of fear reveals itself in a life spent on those in need. A posture of fear reveals itself in a life spent on those in need. So here's the question. How do we make the connection between uh, a posture of fear and spending our lives on the broken, the marginalized, and the poor, which is what I mean by need. For those of you who are uh, traveling through the Tangible Kingdom Primer with us, which is what we do on our Restore Communities, uh, if you were to go back and look at each week and then compare that week with the sermon that is preached on Sunday, you'd be floored. And that's, I don't think that's planning. It just, it's kind of gone that way. And, and so these last couple weeks, we have really been pushing on, uh, on the idea of community. Not, not the pseudo-community like you see at Starbucks where everybody gets together and is in close proximity but ignores each other, right? Not, not the community where you just hang out once a week. But this idea of doing life together for the good of something much bigger than you. And that has just, that has haunted me. In fact, uh, as, as I was thinking about it, and I shared some of this in, in our Restore community, I look at movies like, uh, like Lord of the Rings, and I notice this unity in diversity as these people are traveling for on a mission that's much bigger than them. You look at the movie 300, you've got the same deal. The movie Fight Club, you've got the same deal. There's this thing that calls to us at a deep soul level that goes way beyond what Americans describe as friendship. That we, that the Bible, that, that Hugh Halter, the Tangible Kingdom describes as this community of doing life together for something much bigger than us. The problem is, that's very rare. But not, not, not only that, as I began to, to ask myself uh, about this haunting of community, how do we live in it? How do we reach it? Here's what I found out. This is not just some new pop word in the church. This is not just something cool that we thought about in the 21st century. This is something that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In fact, if you look through the entire Old Testament, what you see is God created man and woman in this garden, in this perfect unity. They modeled, the Trinity modeled this perfect unity to be in common for this greater good. You with me? Then we have, then we have Abraham. We have, I could take you to Nehemiah. And we have on and on this, this idea of community. David and his mighty men. This idea of these people who are very diverse but living life together for something much bigger than themselves. In fact, let's, uh, let's go ahead and just read the text in Acts. And then we'll dissect it. Starting in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. 
This has been God's idea of community from the very beginning. In fact, let's go back. Let's go back to Genesis 22, 9 through 12. God is speaking to, to, let's set up the scene, okay? So Abraham, like most men of his time, he desires a son. He wants an heir to pass on his heritage too. And not only that, but God has told him he's going to have a son. So he's got this whole vision deal going on, but it's, it's not happening. And in fact, in one, at one moment, Abraham takes things into his hand. He takes control of them himself to try to make happen what God had promised him. And to this day, we still wrestle with a mistake. Okay, so Abraham had this, this vision and then God says, no, you've got to do it my way. So he does it his way. He hears the word of God. He obeys God and then God gives him this son, this son that he has longed for, this son that means everything to him. And we'll pick up in verse nine. It says, when they came to the place of which, of which God had told him, so, okay, God gave him a son and now God says, I want you to go kill your son. I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to give him to me. Now, here's a pattern I want us to pick up before we get into to, to the rest of Acts, or before we dissect it. The word of the Lord came. Are you with me? And he didn't just hear it. He listened to it, and he did it. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. There's this idea of fear, the fear of the Lord that runs all throughout the Old Testament, that God continually tells his people, I want to bring you into this, this posture of fear. And this is, here, here's the deal about fear. Let's get this. Fear, we're not talking about the emotion of fear. We're not talking about being scared. We're talking about a posture of fear. And the word fear there literally means a form of respect that causes you to obey at all expense. Fear does this. This is, this is what the posture of fear is. Fear creates boundaries. This is what I mean. Right? If I fear heights, you with me? It sets boundaries in which I will not go beyond. I will never experience the majesty of mountains because that fear of heights created that boundary that I will not disrespect. The, how about the fear of man? Right? I, I will not follow God or I will follow God up until the point it calls me to cross the boundary in which I quit pleasing humanity. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so here we, we have this whole idea of God calling his people to this posture of fear, meaning that we would respect love and submit God to God to the point that it would call us beyond every other boundary we have, but yet never cross the boundary of who he is. In other words, that which you fear most dictates how you live and what you focus on. So here's the question. How do we begin to take on this posture of fear? How does that happen? And this is threaded throughout the entire Old Testament. Let me just read a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 6.2. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you want to jot these down. 
Deuteronomy 6.2, that you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Deuteronomy 17.19, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life. Reading in it is the word of God that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Deuteronomy 31.12, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones in the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law. Now, now let's go back to Acts 2.43. The first line, the most neglected line in this entire text is, and awe translated fear came on every soul. Now, why is this neglected? Because like Brandon said, this entire text is often dumbed down to methodology. And I can't make fear happen. I can try to wow you, but I can't make this type of fear that creates a boundary or calls me beyond every other boundary happen. In fact, it says, and all came upon. It was, they didn't make it happen, but all came upon every soul. Do you remember what Brandon talked about a couple of weeks ago? These were a people who devoted themselves to what? the teachings of the apostles or the word of God. And Brandon said, not devoted in the way of just hearing, but devoted in the way of listening and doing. See, the dangerous church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings in such a way that it led to doing. And it created this awe. It created this fear that since the very beginning, the law tried to complete in people, but it never happened. So here's point number one. A posture of fear is the result of a person devoted to the word of God. A posture of fear is the result of a person devoted to the word of God. Our text goes on, it says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, these these two words, wonders and signs, they literally mean a sign or something that can be observed that is distinguished from. In other words, something that happens in your presence or within your life that distinguishes you from the norm and authenticates and gives credit to. So it's something that happens inside of you that people can see and say there's something different, but on top of that, it gives credit to something else. In short, these two words literally mean observable evidence. Okay, now, now let's go back, because remember, what we're seeing in Acts 2 is nothing more than a fulfillment of what God has been trying to bring his people into since the beginning. Joshua four twenty three through 24 says, For the Lord our God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Here's the deal. What do we have going on? Signs and wonders, observable evidence, right? Something happened in their midst that was observable that gave credit and glory to something else. So in Acts 2, signs and wonders happens to be more than likely miracles, healings, and things like that. But when we go back to Joshua, it is the parting of the sea. When we get to Daniel 3, it says, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said to them, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire 
and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of gods. King Nebuchadnezzar said to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the, here, here it is again, the signs and wonders that the most high has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Once again, we have these people who so feared God that they would not submit to the order of an ungodly king. And what happens? These signs and wonders, this observable evidence happens in the midst of them and it gives credit to God. How many times do we see throughout the Old Testament this small, weak army called Israel go into battle with these massive armies and win? And who ends up getting all the glory? There's this observable evidence that's different than, that's abnormal, that causes people to see the glory of God in them. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's what we're seeing. Observable evidence is not just parting of waters, being flame retardant, healing. Observable evidence is anything that happens in your life that draws tension away from you and to God. So here's the pattern. When you have this people who are devoted to listening to and doing the word of God, he creates in them a posture of fear so that in us and through us, we can show this observable evidence that is observable to the world and they don't see us, but they see God. Are you with me? But let's, let's backtrack. What happens? See, this is, why, this is why the crux of this entire passage is this posture of fear. This awe came up on them. Because what happens when I begin to put on the show, when I begin to try to manufacture and I begin to act it out and something happens, where does credit go? Yeah, me. Me, because I don't have this posture of fear that respects and honors God above all costs. So point number two, a life that is marked by observable evidence that brings glory to God is the result of a person who has a posture of fear. Let's move on to, uh, to verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Brandon hit on this, but let's, let's first say what this is not. What it's talking about being together and in common, what it's not talking about is homogeny. It's not talking about sameness. It's not talking about a bunch of white rich folk gathered together. And then a bunch of black folk and then a bunch of Hispanic folk and then a bunch of Asian folk. That's not what it means to be in common. In fact, in fact, the word in, in common really means not sameness, but it means partnership. But it carries on this. See here, we, we can trace it all the way back to the garden when, when, the, when the Trinity. Two, three, sorry, three very different beings. The Father, the Son, Holy Spirit worked so close in this dance of love and humanity was created. It's this different types of people being able to come together so close for the common good that we are like one. So first of all, uh, so, there, so there's two pictures we have here. We have, the picture of, we have the picture of partnership, but the other picture, Paul actually uses the exact same word, koinonois, 
later on to you for the word generosity. So it's, it's this partnership, not membership, because membership, you show up, you pay your tithe, and then you get something from me. Partnership, we work together for the common good. But the word Paul uses in this is the word partner, is, is generosity. So not only do we come together and we do a little bit, but we come together in this generous spirit and work together. We receive together. We give together again for the common good. It's this idea that we begin to celebrate each other's diversity and work together for one. This is what Jesus said in John 17 when he prayed that we would have this unity. Think of the disciples, very diverse group, but they would work together as one for who? The glory of God. It expresses what we generously contribute and receive. Not one or the other, but both. So point number three, a people who celebrate unity and diversity is a church that is in common for the glory of God and not the glory of self. A people who celebrate unity and diversity is a church that is in common for the glory of God and not the glory of self. Now, we started talking about in Genesis 22 on how God was establishing this posture of fear in Abraham. And what was going to happen with Abraham? He was going to create this people. And here's God's vision for that people. Same chapter, picking up in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here's the question. How does a people who claim to have a posture of fear, who claim to be in common with each other, authenticate that it is God working in their midst? How do we do that? Acts 2.45, let's read that. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. First of all, this giving was voluntary. It was not ordered. We'll see that in Acts 5. Second, the generosity is an overflow of being in common. See, when when God begins to work in us, the thing that authenticates it is the Spirit of God rests on us so much that we are appalled by things like poverty and injustice. And it moves us to act. It moves us to see our own things that we used to call our stuff, not as ours, but as something God has given us to steward for the good of the many. Throughout the Old Testament, we continually see the desire of God to comfort those in need, to move his people to a place after they've got this posture of fear, to move them to a place that they take care of the broken, the widow, and the orphan. In fact, the, the children of Israel, they had gotten to this place where they faked it really well. They had the perfect church services going on perfect worship services. They showed up. They met their quota. They talked the talk. They did it all. And once they got that established, you still had people like Isaiah say things like this. Woe to those who turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of their right. Is not this the fast that I chose? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him. Or Ezekiel who said, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Here's the sin God held against Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor needy. 
or Amos, who said things like three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke this punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor onto the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So, so here's the deal. When we look at the Old Testament, we see this people who had it. They had the law and they were doing it. They, they had the rituals and they were doing it. They had the church service and they were doing it. But, but something wasn't going on because what God still held against them was all this stuff they were doing was not producing a people who spent their life on those in need. So what do we see in Acts 2? A picture of what God had always envisioned for his people. He had always envisioned a people that would represent his mercy and his grace to those who were lost and broken. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that what the law could not do, Jesus himself came to do. And then Jesus said, what do you say? I came and I have fulfilled the law throughout the Old Testament. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were not written to make some moral people. But here's what I found out about the Ten Commandments. If I am to live in common and in community with them, I have to obey them. I don't work if I don't. Are you with me? I've I've got to do it. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, the perfect purpose of the law was to create this people who would spend themselves on the broken so that those around could see this is a picture of what the kingdom is like. Nobody is looked over. And so what we have is Jesus Christ came. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the law. And all of a sudden, out of that comes this people Not because they're following some law, but because they have this posture of fear that is a result of them hearing and doing the word of God. They have this posture of fear that created these people in common with this observable evidence that has been authenticated through themselves spending their lives on the poor. So point number four is this. A church that takes on a posture of fear is a church that is full of observable evidence and works in common for the glory of God and is authenticated by life spent on the broken, poor, and marginalized. So how do we bring this home? What does this have to do with you and me? First of all, what do you fear? Not not, not what are you scared of, but what do you fear? Do you fear the rejection of man so much that you're willing to go so far with God, but you draw the line when going with God might cause you to offend that? Do you fear being unnoticed so much that you will go beyond that which God has called you to? Will you compromise for the sake of being noticed? Do you fear poverty or not accomplishing the American dream so much that we will spend all on us? Because see, here's what we have. We don't have a church of We don't have a church. The first century church was not a rich church. It's not a church that sat around and said, you know what? We got some poor folk up there, but we're some good Christian folks. So here's what we're going to do, hon. We're not going to get the flat panel television for Junior's room. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to take that money and we're going to help the homeless man out. That's not what we have going on. We have a church that's being taxed 80% who already has nothing, but they fear God so much or they respect him so much that he will take care that their life is being spent on those who don't. 
Well, I don't know who or what do I, what I fear. I don't know what I respect. Okay, then what does the observable evidence in your life point to? If people are to look at your life, if people are to look at my life, if people are to look at the life of the church, who's getting the glory? Is it us? Or is it God? Are we living in common with those other than us for the purpose of the glory of God? Well, uh, I go to church with other races. I put my 10% in, in the plate. I, I went to church twice this month. Well, that, that's great, but is it being authenticated in a heart that's being broken and called to action for those who are in need? Because here it is, a posture of fear reveals itself in a life that is spent on those in need. Let's pray.